Pastor Nick has been preaching faithfully through the book of Hebrews. I don't think that anybody has come in and taken a portion of this book up to this point. And so I, you know, as I read the passage, and I'm thinking of the, the marvelous richness of just this passage, I did go to Pastor Nick and I just said, are you sure <laughs> this is what you want to do? Because he's been preaching faithfully. And this is such a pivotal moment in the book of Hebrews and to the congregation and really the core message of what the, the, the author is really trying to get at, which is that subject of faith. In fact, the subject of faith in this book is like the subject of love in the Corinthian book, the, the book of 1 Corinthians. There's the, the largest exhortation on love in the book of 1 Corinthians because that congregation was dealing with the subject of love. And now here we are with a congregation that's not struggling with the subject of love necessarily, but with the subject of faith, and it is an important subject of faith. In fact, it's, so, it's become such an important aspect of faith that people call this chapter the Hall of Faith. It's like the Hall of Fame of faith. But it's not about the men and the women in this chapter. It's about the core subject of faith. There is something that rises above those people, and there's even something that rises above the subject of faith itself, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're going to be looking at the subject of faith, especially as it pertains to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's also fitting that this is the 11th chapter of Hebrews. It's also our 11th anniversary to the day, me and my wife, December 5th is when we got married 11 years ago, and there's something about faith. Yeah, we can cheer that on. <laughs> yeah, praise God, praise God. And he, God has been so faithful in our marriage. But you know, the sort of faith that's built on human terms is not the sort of faith that we're going to be looking at this morning. I've got a lot of faith in my wife. Okay, I've got a lot of faith in the way she conducts herself and the way that she raises her children and all that. And God has been very faithful in that, but that's not the faith we're looking at. But we are looking at a faith that, that really does associate itself with the subject of marriage. The subject of marriage has become such an important aspect of God's church. It's a mystery that's been revealed to us in this time that the subject of marriage has always been about Jesus Christ and the church. And God is so faithful, and he always fulfills his promises. And there's a promise that was made when I married my wife, and it was until death do us part. And that is so essential, especially as Christians, that we portray the image of Jesus Christ and the church. Because Jesus has made the promise that he will not separate from his church, that what he has done is final, and it is sure, and we can say amen to that. It's been a joy really getting to know the congregation of Hebrews. Right? A lot of times we just focus on certain aspects of, and certain portions of Scripture, but we've had the, the amazing honor and privilege of getting to know this congregation over time, especially as Pastor Nick has been preaching on it. And in the first ten chapters of this book, the author has been hammering the point that the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. This theme that Jesus Christ is preeminent. He is first and he is foremost. There's a word that we like to learn in this congregation. One of the things that impressed me about this community is the word propitiation and how, how well you all know this word, right? I mean, I, I kid you not, rolling up to that coming in here, I actually judge the, 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 the translations of Scripture that I like to use based on whether they actually put the word propitiation in the book or not. And if the word's not there, I just throw it out and I'm like, is there another translation where they haven't forfeited that word? Because it's such an important word. And we know propitiation to be wrath absorber. That's how we've, that's how we've defined that term. Well, there is another term that I'd like to bring that is, that is also essentially important. That is the word preeminence. Preeminence. First and foremost, Jesus is preeminent. 
Jesus is our ultimate sacrifice, and he is infinitely superior to the sacrifices of the animals of the Old Testament. The animals of the Old Testament, as we learned, could never take away sins. Those animals only served as a shadow pointing to the reality and the actual object of our faith, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the better sacrifice. Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than the prophets. Jesus is better than Moses and Aaron and Joshua. He is a better high priest. He is the better mediator of a better covenant, which is rooted in a better sacrifice. Jesus is the better hope enacted on the better promises. Jesus is the better possession. Jesus' blood is better is the better blood, which brings about the better eternal life through the better resurrection. Jesus Christ is better. He is superior. He is preeminent. And the author has been hammering this point home time and time and time again. There's been a lot of blood. There's been a lot of blood. But there is only one blood sacrifice that has led to eternal salvation, and it is a sacrifice, and it is the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. There is a genuine concern of the author on the part of this congregation. Remember Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31, he said, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He is genuinely concerned about the souls of this congregation. And then in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 39, he says, But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And perhaps those are there, there are those of you in this room who are suffering on the subject of faith. You're telling yourself that if only I can just try a little bit harder, maybe then God will accept me. Or you think in yourself, I am so good. How can God not accept someone like me? And that's equally as dangerous when we talk about the subject of faith. And Pastor Nick preached it last week. He said, don't shrink back. Don't shrink back. Let me summarize in a sentence the exhortation that the author has been getting at up to this point. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. In every sense, put your faith in Jesus Christ. He is in every way preeminent. Jesus is number one. He is foremost. Lay aside everything else and put Jesus in the forefront of everything that you believe. Time and time again throughout this letter, the author has been warning them not to fall back, but to maintain the strength and the faith that they've been given and to remember to not shrink back. And he says, come to Jesus. He says, come to Jesus. Come all the way to Jesus. Don't withhold what Jesus has been giving us. Come all the way to faith in Jesus Christ. And this is such a large request of a congregation that has been set on the old covenant practice of Jewish tradition. You see, because God's law was not provided for us to be perfect before God. It was to remind us that we are imperfect people. And yet they had this thought that they can earn salvation through their quote-unquote religiosity. Many attempted to earn salvation through their works. And they thought to themselves, if we could just keep God's law plus the 600-plus laws that were created outside of the Bible, then maybe and perhaps with consistency of good works, we will have gained enough merit before God in order to earn and purchase that salvation for ourselves. What a twisted view of what it is that God had genuinely had in mind for that congregation of people. 
You and I well know that in our studies and in the, tes- uh, in a, in the studies of the, two, the New Testament as well as our studies of Jesus Christ that this works-based salvation has been challenged repeatedly. It's not something new, but it's been addressed. And Pastor Nick quoted a passage from last week, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 9. For by grace, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. We cannot even boast in the faith that God has given us because Jesus has done everything for you and for me. We, are also, we also know that faith is accompanied by good works. So I don't want to diminish that God has called us to be a people separate, to be a people that's been set apart and made holy, because we are saved by faith alone, yes, but faith is never alone. Let me just say that again. We are saved by faith, through faith alone, but faith is never alone. Good works are the byproduct of faith, and it becomes for us an evidence of what faith is. There's a poster board out here, and this was some time ago where this congregation was going through the study of James. And on that poster board, it says something along the lines of real faith is visible faith. And that's what it had in mind, that if you are one who is genuinely saved through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, your life will be marked by good works. Jewish tradition seemed to have it backwards, though, didn't it? I mean, rather than communing with God through faith, they thought in their minds that they can work themselves into relationship with God. This was a faith established through works of the law, and I would argue that a faith like that is no faith at all. A faith that is set on our own helps and our own works is no faith at all. But, and there were some that were just unwilling to abandon their religious works-based system, right? And so they, they, they see, they've been exposed to the, the surface-level gospel truths, and they're starting to shrink back now and fall back under that tyranny of the law. This chapter then shows us that salvation is through faith alone. The introduction of this chapter really, though, started for us last week in chapter 10. Remember, there was a strong warning that was issued in chapter 10, verse 26 to 31. And then that was followed up by encouragement in verse 32. And the encouragement was a reminder of how they endured by faith those things that the natural person doesn't endure. It was a reminder of their unwavering faith in the Lord Jesus Christ And the means by which we receive our great confidence and our great reward is through faith. So with that introduction, I'm going to ask that we stand for the reading of God's word. Here at Timberline Baptist, we value God's word. Everything we preach, we just talked about preparation this morning. Every week is a preparation of the person who is in Christ. This is just a reminder of us of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to back it up. I'm actually going to start in chapter 10, verse 38, but we are going to read through verse 6 of chapter 11. Chapter 10 and verse 38. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, The conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, 
and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God, and without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the subject of faith that you are bringing to us this morning. This is such a core and foundational thing for us. Lord, may your words speak through the hearts of those that are here, Lord, mine included, that we wouldn't receive the subject of faith as the world sees faith, but we would see it through the lens of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he intended as genuine and sincere faith in who you are, that we must believe everything that you are, including those things that result in the reward and commendation. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and may you be with us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As I said, this is going to be a foundational passage for all of us. We know that Jesus has been the central theme of the Bible. And I'm reminded of the walk to Emmaus when he opened up even the Old Testament and he pointed to everything that pertained to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So everything, all aspects of the Bible really point to this consummate joy of knowing Jesus Christ. And if Jesus Christ is a central theme of the Bible, it would be important then that we'd understand the means by which we have access now to the Lord Jesus Christ. And God has chosen faith to be the means by which we come to the Lord Jesus Christ. We understand that we are saved through faith. We receive the gospel through faith. The Westminster Confession calls faith the alone instrument of justification. John Owen in his commentary said, it is faith alone which from the beginning of the world in all ages under all dispensations of divine grace hath been the only principle in the church of living unto God, of obtaining the promises, of inheriting life eternal, and doth continue so to be unto the consummation of all things. Spiritual life is by faith, and victory and perseverance and salvation, so they were from the very beginning. This concept of faith is nothing new to God's people. Like many other important topics of the Bible, we know the subject of faith has been misconstrued, right? It's been falsely defined, it's been abused in ways that go beyond any comprehension, and it's resulted in wholesale destruction of certain church bodies. There's a faith movement in mainstream Christianity known as, well, the faith movement. (laughs) It's like we can't come up with a better term, so we're going to call it the faith movement. In this movement, people talk about the power of faith. It is in this so-called power of faith movement that they're not talking about biblical faith, but they're talking about a counterfeit faith that, listen, this is trying to add power to it. So rather than having faith in God, they say have faith in faith. So the object of their faith becomes faith. And it is that faith that somehow is, becomes the object of their faith. And it's this sort of faith that claims to create its own sort of future. It's this sort of faith that claims to believe things into being. And it says that we have the power of faith to change how people see us, our financial circumstances, successes, ambitions, hopes, dreams, and all kinds of other selfish desires. It becomes kind of like the rubbing of the genie in the bottle. God is here at my disposal, and if I would just have enough faith, then God will do what I've been asking him to do. You see how that becomes a misconstrued type of faith. My sister actually introduced me to a book called The Secret that was just kind of going out, right? And, and in this book, it's become so mainstream that there's a Netflix special on it now. And in it, what you do is you just believe very hard 
into being those things that you want to see. So you sort of wake up in the morning and you repeat to yourself these things that you want to see happening in your lives, and it's not far removed from the faith movement. It's a counterfeit faith that resonates with people because it is a very selfish faith, one that gets me what I want, but God now becomes the means by which it happens in that kind of faith. And then there's the formless kind of faith, you know, it's, it's more of a personal feeling. Are you a person of faith? You know, the plurality of, are you a person of faith? You may have seen those coexist bumper stickers. I confess, those things drive me nuts. Like, you cannot coexist. If you have, especially with, with the, the sort of, the, the faith that's listed on there. I mean, there's so many opposing doctrines that it's impossible to come together and say, yeah, let's coexist together somehow. Satan would have everyone believe that we all share the same kind of faith that's described in Hebrews 11. I've got a friend at work who thinks we're of the same faith, and no matter how many times I tell him that Jesus is God, he refuses to believe that, and yet somehow we're both people of faith. And there's this common unity somehow in there, but that's not what God has in mind for faith. It's not what God has in mind for unity. Biblical faith, as we will see this morning, has a very specific object. Faith is not the object of our faith. Our opinion of God is not the object of our faith. God has revealed by his holy word, is the object of faith in anyone who comes to know Jesus Christ. Biblical faith relies not on our own future, but on the confident trust of the future of God that's rooted in all of his promises to us. Biblical faith has a very specific person in mind. The future is laid out in scripture and according to God's perfect promises, which will always come true. When we talk about faith, we're talking about trusting in God, not trusting in ourselves, not trusting in other people, not trusting in this euphoric thing that's happening around us. It's trust in God through God's word. So we know who God is, and we know what God's promises are through his word. And there is a logical way that the author has chosen to to put the, the first six verses of Hebrew 11 together. First, he talks about the description of faith in verses 1 through 3. So he gets at what is faith like and what does it do so he gives us the description of faith and then he gives us a display of faith using examples like Abel and Enoch to show us what faith can look like in the life of a person and then there is the delight of faith and as I've been studying up leading up to this point God has really just got me so excited about the subject of faith especially as it pertains to the delight of faith And I think I would be doing a great disservice to this community if I hadn't started with the delight of faith. And I've been praying about this, so it's going to be a little bit out of order this morning. And we're going to start with verse 16. And, you know, my prayer has been that that excitement that God has instilled in me throughout the course of the last two weeks would be articulated in a way that you can receive those things that are almost unspeakable. It's just hard to put into words the things that God delivers to us through his teaching. So let's look at a faith delighted in verse chap- sorry, chapter 11, verse 6. Listen to this. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. It is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. There is something unique in the way that this author chooses to write portions of this letter and it really emphasizes certain truths, and he uses negatives to emphasize truths. Again, I point, I'm looking at the walk to Emmaus when they said, did our hearts not burn within us? It's a way of saying our hearts were burning within us. It's just like it emphasizes it. And so the author chooses this form of literary style to make the case. Let me give you a few examples. Last week we looked at one. We are not those who shrink back and are destroyed. 
It's another way of saying we are those who have faith and preserve the souls. And he actually gives us that's what he's meaning in it. And then we have, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Is just another way of the author saying we do have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. Do not throw away your confidence which has great reward is another way of saying hold fast to the confidence which has great reward. Without faith, it is impossible to please God is another way of saying faith pleases God. Faith pleases God. Faith has always been the means by which God is pleased with God's people. We are fallible finite, fallen people, and this just blows my mind that we could be in the state that we are in and yet somehow the holy, righteous, elevated God can find pleasure in you and me. And he has chosen the method by which he finds pleasure in the subject of faith. This idea of pleasing God is something that we all should be striving for. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, Paul urges all of us to make this our aim to please Him. So you see, the subject of faith becomes an extremely important subject in the life of a believer. If God is pleased through faith, then faith must be the means by which we find our satisfaction in God as He finds our, His satisfaction in us. Spurgeon says... It's not just difficult or that success is barely possible. He declares it to be impossible. When the Spirit says impossible, he means it in the absolute sense. Let us not attempt the impossible. To rush upon an impossibility is madness, is what Spurgeon says. Notice there is an impossibility. You cannot, you cannot please God without faith. It is through faith alone, in Christ alone, that God finds his pleasure alone. God cannot find pleasure in you if you do not have faith. So faith becomes all the more important. The list goes on. For whoever would draw near to God must, must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Two things must be true about us when we come to to God in faith. First, you must believe that he is. You must believe that he is. And there are many commentators who rightly believe that this verse means that to to come to God, you must believe that he exists. Now, I don't know about you, but it just seems so obvious that if you want to come to God, he must exist. It seems so obvious, in fact, that the author must have something more in mind than just you must believe that God exists. It's true that to come to God, you have to believe that he exists because if he doesn't exist, how can you come to God, right? So there must be something more to what he's saying. In fact, believing in the existence of God is not the matter of faith that Scripture is concerned with altogether. There are many who believe in the existence of a God and they have no faith at all. James chapter 2, verse 19 says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. The more literal translation of this passage then is that you must believe all that God is. Not just that he exists, but you must believe that God is exactly who God says he is. What the passage is saying is that to please God, 
You must believe more than just there is a God to please God. You must believe that God is exactly who he says he is. And how do you know who God is? He says he is. It's through the word of God. This is why we open the Bible every weekend, to get to know who God is. And it's not like you get a choice at the end of your life. You know, it's like a multiple choice question. Who is it that you've been putting your faith in so that I can judge you according to that God? Which God did you believe in? You know, when judgment day comes, it's going to be terribly uncomfortable for certain people. God's existence in Scripture is altogether assumed in the Bible. It starts with this grand assertion, in the beginning, God. God exists. I mean, this is why the Bible says you are a fool to think that there is no God. I mean, it's such a crazy thought to think there is no God that you're considered fool. Look, if you're in this room and you don't believe that God exists... The biblical diagnosis of you is that you're a fool. This is not my diagnosis of you. It's the Bible's diagnosis of you. And then there are those who do believe that God does exist. And you think in your minds that's sufficient, but it's not sufficient because God has said it's not sufficient just to know that a God exists. You must believe everything that God says he is. When God appeared to Moses as the burning bush, he's providing Moses instruction. Moses receives that instruction. He's ready to go out. And Moses asked God, who shall I say sent me? God's response to Moses was, tell them I am has sent you. I am has sent you. And this word for I am is just another variation for the word to be. This is what Jesus had in mind when he said, before Abraham was, I am. And it got a lot of people triggered that day because they knew exactly what he's getting at. He's going back to that moment when Moses was to tell everybody that the I am has sent you. Jesus is saying, I am that I am. Jesus was claiming to be the great I am. Jesus was claiming to be God himself. He was claiming to be the self-existent, self-sufficient one. He was claiming to be the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. He was claiming to be the Alpha and the Omega. He was claiming to be God himself. If you want to believe that God is everything he says he is, then you must believe that Jesus, who claimed to be God, is God himself. Jesus is God. God is everything he claims to be and nothing less. Jesus is everything he claims to be and nothing less. This is a very powerful and very foundational aspect of our faith that God is who he says he is in this book, the Bible. Do you put all of your hope in it? There are some of those who, if we were faced with our own decision to recreate God, we would come up with a much different version, and you would make him look miserably as terrible as you. I'm thankful I don't get to define who God is, and I'm sure thankful that you don't get to decide who God is. Our imagination does not inform our belief. Our faith informs our belief. Faith is what brings the scripture alive. I mean, without faith, it's impossible to understand the spiritual things of who God is. God brings it out. God is characterized by certain words that we all admire, things like love and mercy and compassion and grace, patience, long-suffering. But God is more than that. He's also characterized with holiness and justice and wrath and sovereignty and all these other things. First, you must believe that God is. Do you believe that God is? And and, and this is such an important subject. Listen to me. To think that it's sufficient to come in on a Sunday morning 
and read a paragraph out of the Bible and then wait until the next weekend is not going to provide you the detail that you would need to sustain joyful living in Christ. Like, I'm not saying that, that you've you, you somehow fallen out of God's grace by doing that, but I'm saying that there is something that faith energizes us where we get excited about who God is. And so God has given us so graciously His Word to reveal who He is. This is something that we should be opening daily. And I see this, and this has been really an encouragement to me. Those who are involved in discipleship groups open up the Bible. They're memorizing the Bible, and they're talking about who God is. And I have not heard one, not even like, average statement it's been it's been all good what god is doing in these groups so i hope that you'll consider that and if you want to know what that is and come to any one of the elders or any one of the table group leaders and we'll help you understand what that is now look second on your outline is you must believe that god is a rewarder for those who seek him okay first you accept that god is who he is based on his revelation not our own revelation but his second you must believe that he rewards those who come to him now, look, it's possible that there are some of you who have come to know the God of this Bible, but you say to yourself, he's all these things, but not for me. You believe him to be sovereign. You believe him to be loving. You believe him to be good, but you stop short of believing that he's all these things to you. Brother or sister in Christ, listen to me very closely. God is a rewarder of all those who diligently seek him. He doesn't show favoritism towards one person of faith versus another person of faith. The God of the Bible, who has all these things that we've discussed and more, is also the God who says on a personal level, I am all these things for you. I mean, that just blows my mind what we must believe he is, but to think that he's also a rewarder and that we must believe that he's a rewarder for me? That's insane. Believe everything God says about who God says he is. And also that he is good, but not just in the generic sense. Believe he's all these things good and good for you as well. He wants to know you personally too. He's not just this distant God who says, just worship me tyrannically. He says, worship me and find a reward in who I am. Before we get too carried away about the reward, I want to say this about his reward what he does not mean, what the author does not mean in this passage is that if you come to God and you seek out a reward, that he's going to give you a really nice house or a really nice car or comfort or a certain sense of circumstantial peace. The idea is not that you're going to have so much money that you're not going to know what to do with yourself or that somehow the physical suffering is going to end the reward is not that you're going to finally nail that dream job that you've been trying to pursue all your life or to get that promotion that has suddenly opened up. When you come to God with a God-given faith and you come to know who God is, all the materialistic, selfish things of this world vanish away because that is how valuable God is. The suffering becomes minuscule. The material things become minuscule as God becomes all the more glorified in our lives. And you begin to realize, listen to this, you begin to realize that the self-existent, self-sufficient God is the reward. God is the reward. 
God is our ultimate reward. You see, this is why it's so easy to endure hardship when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. This is why it's so easy to lay aside things and hold things with loose hands because it's all his anyway. And even if he took it away, he can't take away Jesus Christ. Jesus is ours for the taking. He is our reward in Christ for any of those who would come to faith in Jesus Christ. God said to Abraham, I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. Look, we don't go to heaven because there's gold streets or pearly gates and all this beautiful imagery. And believe me, it's going to be beautiful when we go to heaven. How did Pastor Nick put it? It's like trying to explain a color that doesn't exist. I mean, you're not going to be able to even comprehend the majesty of heaven. We go to heaven because Jesus is going to be there. And, and there is nothing more majestic than the Lord Jesus Christ himself who's going to be the light and the warmth and the comfort and the peace. God rewards those who seek him by giving, him the, giving us the perfect joy of finding and knowing him. I think of the prodigal son when after all this, he comes to the, the understanding that he misses his father. He shows up to the father and father opens up his arms and he just embraces this child with loving kindness. You see, because the son, when he came back to his father, wasn't there now for the circumstance. He was there because the father was there. The father became his great reward when he came to embrace him. And the father didn't withhold. He embraced him with an affectionate embrace that goes beyond any natural affection. There is the marvelous sense of being accepted by God, not based on performance, but on the basis of our faith. Faith is the absolute confidence that all of God's promises are true and yes and amen. There is nothing more precious than the reality of God's promises. There is a satisfaction that comes with drinking out of the river of life. God is life. When we understand that God is, and when we diligently seek him as a reward, you will get nothing less than God himself. I mean, think about that. There's nothing more marvelous and valuable than God himself. The gospel then is summed up in one word, Jesus Christ. Just Jesus Jesus is the good news, and he is our great reward. We might be stripped of everything. I mean, all material things might be stripped of us, but you will always have, for the one who has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you will always have Jesus. He will never be taken away from you. Do you ever wonder how so many people with so many backgrounds and different personality types can all be redeemed by the same kind of faith? I mean, there are people that are so different than me. I think I can't even stand being in the same room as them because they're so opposite of me. And yet they're saved by the same kind of faith. Well, I'll tell you, it's because the strength of our faith is not rooted in who we are. The strength of our faith is rooted in who God is. God is the source of faith. We learned last week that real faith is a faith that is a gift of God. Remember that? He said, if God gave up his own, his own son, if God gave up his own son, how much more than will he give you all spiritual things? We can't boast in our faith because it's not our faith to begin with. And yet, it's a faith that is complete with total dependence on who God is. There's nothing we can offer to God of our own doing. We simply say to ourselves, I can't do anything apart from the charity and goodness of who God is. And God says, I love that. 
if you're with Jesus, you're with me. God does something inside of us. It just becomes this insatiable desire to get to know who God is. More and more I want to get to know who God is. On the one hand, in that sense, it's like there's this thirst that can never be quenched. Because we know that what we know of him is only scratching the surface. And there's so much more to know about God. And so we open up the word of God and we dig in and we say, God, this is you? I want to know more. And then on the other hand, there's a sense in which we found everything we've been looking for in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we don't need to look any further because we found him in Jesus Christ. He's the pearl of great price. He's that hidden treasure of infinite value. We don't need to look any further. When you have found the Lord Jesus Christ, don't shrink back to think that you're going to find anything more valuable than him. He's the most valuable thing in all the universe. There's a really good sense that this kind of faith pleases God. This kind of faith clings to the Messiah, and it is one of total dependence on God. At the coronation of Jesus Christ, remember, God said, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. God is pleased in the Son. And if faith makes so much of the Lord Jesus Christ, then God is pleased in that person. I mean, do you get that? That our faith isn't something of our own doing that pleases God. Our faith is directed toward the Lord Jesus Christ. It places him first and foremost. It makes him preeminent. And God says, if you're that way with Jesus, you're good with me. God is pleased in faith that's directed towards the Lord Jesus Christ because God is pleased in Jesus Christ. Do you see how everything just directs itself to Jesus? He becomes altogether preeminent. Everything has been about Jesus Christ, but not absent of our reward, who is Jesus Christ himself. There are those of you here this morning who are asking yourself, how can I please God with this kind of faith? What do I need to do to receive this reward? Here's what you do. You go to the Father through the Son, with nothing in your hands but a confidence that if you go to the Father investing all of your confidence in the Son, the one who died to take away sins, if you go to the Father all the way with confidence in Christ, not in yourself or of anyone else, God will receive you. And he will accept you by nothing less than the valuable and precious blood of Jesus Christ. God says, welcome to my family. Everything is yours. You are mine. I am yours. And the Father is pleased in your faith. And then someone inevitably comes up to me and says, I'm not good enough. There's a difference between remorse and repentance, because remorse says, I'm not good enough, and then you just end it there. Look, the reality is you're not good enough. Nobody who has ever walked the earth apart from Jesus Christ has been good enough to please God. Realize that your only requirement is to feel the need of a Savior and to turn yourself to Jesus Christ. It's not enough to know of the things of God. You must know God. It's not enough to delight in the things of God. You must delight in God. It's not enough to seek and to serve in the creation of God. You must serve God, the creator. God himself is our reward. 
A book titled Faith in All Its Splendor by Spurgeon had this to say. I, whose actions were contrary to the law of God and the bent of whose mind was against the gospel of Christ. I, even I, who was once obnoxious to his divine anger, an heir of wrath, even as others have now, through faith, become an object of his divine pleasure. This is very wonderful. I just put myself in, you know, spurred and she's right. This is very wonderful. If the Holy Spirit leads you to feel the full sweetness of the truth of God, you will rejoice with joy unspeakable. And then he goes on, I feel like singing rather than preaching. This preacher of preachers says, I would much rather sing right now because of the joy, the, just the amazing Immense joy of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. We should all just be in our seats cringing and ready to sing and pursue God and give him the glory. Because God now has a positive disposition towards you. Faith is such a foundational necessity in the life of a believer. We must know what faith is. Right, and so now, now that we just got, we kind of have this internal sense of what faith is. Like I hope that you walk out of here just at this point alone. Walking out feeling like you know what faith is. But we're going to roll into faith described because it's been 11, 10 chapters and now he's, the author's finally getting faith described. So it's important that we describe what faith is. And last week, I think Pastor Nick defined it perfectly. And I'm just going to re- quote this. This is a definition of faith if you want to just write it down. Faith trusts in the promises of God and acts accordingly. This is a very simple definition that works really well. Faith trusts in the promises of God, and acts accordingly. Now, we know that we are saved by faith alone, and again I say, faith is never alone. And this is not the first time that faith has been mentioned in Hebrews. Remember back in chapter 4, verse 2, it says, For the good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1 says, Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. Hebrews 6, 12 says, Be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises of God. In chapter 10, verse 22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. And then we read this last week, My righteous one shall live by faith. It's important that we know what faith is. Here we are, finally, at the core message. This is a description of faith. It's not an exhaustive definition of what faith is. I think it would be difficult in just the course of three verses to exhaust the definition of faith. But notice, first and foremost, faith is a noun, right? I mean, it's, it's a belief. It's a trust. It's a confidence. It's a noun. And when it's a noun, it means it's something that we can actually possess. Like, we possess faith. It becomes in the reality of settled faith in the life of a believer. Faith is something that we receive regarding things not seen. This passage provides two elements of faith to help us better understand what faith is. First, there's that internal confidence, which is provided through faith. And the second, there's an outward evidence provided through faith. Notice the first two parts in in verse 1. Now faith is the assurance, the inward confidence of things hoped for, the conviction... That's the outward evidence of things not seen. And, and, and th- this word for assurance, 
has been a very difficult word to translate over the years. There's no less than 12 different ways to translate this thing. And, and even Luther himself really had to come to grips on it. And he landed at the word assurance. But I really enjoy the, the King James Version and how, how they did it. And that's not to diminish how the ESV has translated it. But the King James Version says, faith is the substance. It's the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Now, the word translated for assurance, uh, it's, it's got this idea of a title deed. So when you look at some of the earliest manuscripts around the same time that this letter was written, there's this aspect of a title deed that's attached to it. And what that means is you're given a piece of paper, and that piece of paper legally guarantees that you're going to receive a piece of property. And so when you look at the assurance, that inward assurance through the lens of the title deed, what it's saying is that faith is the very thing that guarantees for you the future promises of who God is. His promises have been secured for us by the priestly work of Jesus Christ. Everything God has promised in this life and the life to come is ours because we have the title deed, faith. This title deed is the guarantee. And then, so then how then do we, how then do we receive the things that God promised? Well, it's through faith and it's faith alone. It's that confident trust that God has promised everything that we are to receive. Faith is trusting in what is not yet visible. It's trusting in what is not yet received. It's trusting in what has not yet been experienced. You know, like, like we've got a lot of faith in technology today, right, through experience. Ha, ah, some of us are laughing. But, you know, we, we get up here and we expect things to turn on and to work for us because experience tells us that for the most part these things work. But faith that's rooted in the Bible is the sort of faith that's rooted on the promises and the confidence of things that have not necessarily been experienced or things that have not yet been seen. If you were to have seen them, it no longer becomes faith because it's become realized. Faith, then, is the inner confidence and the secure assurance that those things which God promised belongs to us even now. They belong to us in a very real way. Second, faith is an outward evidence or conviction. And this part speaks of the proof or the evidence in the life of a believer. This is the demonstration now of faith. In other words, faith is not just a blind faith. It's evidenced in the life of a believer. The first great work of faith then becomes repentance. It's where we turn our eyes to the Lord Jesus Christ and away from ourselves. We just learned that faith gives us certainty that future events will happen. And if there is a certainty and there is an assurance that those future things are going to happen in our lives, would our lives not now be marked with the very evidence that suggests that to be true? We don't just believe that God will perform those future events on our behalf, but that the corollary is that you now turn your will and act accordingly to those promises of God and who God is. I remember in the Truth Project, there's this, there's this saying that, towards the beginning. It says, do you really believe what you believe is really real? Do you really believe what you believe is really real? And if you really believe what you really believe is really real, your life is going to be marked with the sort of life that suggests that to be true. So let me try and sum this up for you. Faith enables us to have a confidence in God's future promises so that with courage we can undertake an unseen future supported by one thing alone, the word of God. These first century Jewish Christians were in danger of abandoning their faith in Jesus Christ. 
They must have come up with a lot of arguments, you know, in their minds to say, I know that you're talking about this enduring faith, but when you look at some of the, the, the Old Testament saints, did they, were they not commended by their righteousness and their good works? Like, did our forefathers not work towards this? But the author is combating this attitude very quickly because it is by what kind of faith that we receive our commendation? He answers the point by pointing to the fact that ever since the beginning of the Bible, like Abel himself, it has been the same string of faith that pleases God. It was by faith that our fathers were approved by God, not because of their righteous deeds, but because of their faith. They were approved and accepted and pleasing to God, not by the things they did, but by faith which resulted in the things they did. Without faith, it is impossible to do what? To please God. Scripture itself testifies to their approval. They lived by faith, and they lived according to that faith. For us, this hasn't changed at all since the time of Abel into 2022 and well into the future and until the Lord comes back, amen, hallelujah, it's going to be marked by faith. We now live in a certain kind of world where by knowledge we can anticipate the future by the written word of God. That's the kind of faith that God has approved in the past. This is the kind of faith that he's going to prove into the future. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and walk by faith and not by sight. We walk with the title deed in hand. I mean, it's guaranteed. Like, and if I've got a title deed in my hand, I'm going to start preparing for the very thing that that title deed has guaranteed. And I pray this is true for all of us. The writer of this letter provides wonderful examples of faith. And I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to summarize this. I, I, the time is running short. And so I'm going to, to talk about Abel and Enoch. These are two examples. Abel really being the example of inner confidence and Enoch being that example of outward evidence of what faith can look like in the life of a believer. Notice Abel, he's chosen as a first illustration of faith. He's described as having the more acceptable sacrifice. Abel is the first man who was born into sin who came to know God by faith. I mean, this is so essentially important because in a world where we feel like the subject of faith is morphing and translating into something new, it's now combated by the very reality that the very first person who has been received by God has been received by faith in God. The entire point is to let the Jewish people know that this isn't something new. Even the primitive faith of Abel was sufficient to save. And look, when I say primitive faith of Abel, I'm not suggesting that his faith was, was so primitive that it's like old school tool type mentality. What I'm suggesting is Abel knew very little about who God was. I mean, remember, he was the first who, re who was received into heaven. And he knew very little, but he did know one thing. He knew that God is exactly who God says he is based on the knowledge of what God has presented to him. And, and notice, um, Abel was not commended by his sacrifice. I really want to make this point clear. In verse 4, it says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. And if you just read this straightforwardly, what you would think is that it's through which, it's through which, excuse me, let me read that again. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteousness. Okay. It, it would seem that the sacrifice that Abel offered is the means by which he was received as righteous. But it doesn't stop there. It goes on. God commending him by accepting his gifts. See, look, Abel came to God by faith. God said, I accept you. 
And the way that I'm going to show that I accept you is by receiving your sacrifice. Okay, because if Abel were to come to God without faith, offering the same sort of sacrifice, it would not have done him any good. But he came to God in faith, realizing that there is a future promise, there is a future sacrifice that is in store for him that will bring about the salvation of the world. And it is by that faith that God says, I accept your sacrifice. And I know there's a lot of controversy out there about whether Abel's sacrifice was accepted because of his attitude towards God or if it was by virtue of the fact that it was a blood sacrifice. And to that I would say yes. Abel was received because he had faith in God. And we also know that God has determined that it is going to require for us a blood sacrifice to come to God. And and this is so important because there's been so much blood. (laughs) Pastor Nick has been faithfully teaching on blood, you know. And to know that there is a blood sacrifice that's in store as a means by which we come to salvation is equally important. Now, Cain's sacrifice was rejected. Cain became very angry when Abel's sacrifice was accepted, but his wasn't. And in 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, it says, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. You see, because God viewed Abel's sacrifice as righteous and he viewed Cain's as evil, not because of the virtue of the fact necessarily of what he sacrificed, but by virtue of the fact that he had no faith. I think of the widow who put in just a penny. And Jesus is just on on the sideline watching these people. This is in Mark chapter 12, I think. And he's, he's watching people put money in the jar. And it says there were people who put a lot of money in the jar. Praise God. But there's this lady who put this little tiny penny in the jar. And Jesus said, that person is going to inherit the kingdom of God. Like, that that person's faith is huge, right? Because it's not the matter of what it is that we're sacrificing necessarily. It is by faith because that person had given more than all the rest. It's like, nothing I have is mine to begin with. And I could just picture Cain's attitude. He's just so prideful, right? I mean, he's probably tilling the ground. He's got all this really good fruit of the harvest. And then you got those fruits that are around the edge, you know, that look like they're just about to shrivel. And he says, let's just collect those things and give those to God. Like that, that's kind of how I see it, because he's so proud in his heart of everything he's got, and he doesn't want to give that up. And so he clings to that, and he, said, he instead gives God the remainder of it. Now, I can't be dogmatic in that, but I can tell you, it, it says Abel did provide the first fruits. Abel provided the best. There's nothing that suggests that Cain did that. But there's nothing that suggests necessarily that he didn't either. So I want to make sure that's clear. So Cain becomes for us an illustration of of counterfeit faith. He had a works-based faith. Abel, on the other hand, he, he knew the truth that he was a sinner. He knew the truth that he was under the sentence of death. The truth that God is, as he designed, a substitute for his place. And then this is really interesting because Abel... He's the first person that was received into heaven. I mean, I mean, mark that, right? Because right now there are millions, I would hope, of people who are rejoicing in the presence of God right now because to, to die is gain, and they're with Christ. But Abel was the first one, and one person enters in the gates of heaven, and all of heaven rejoices. And this is a mystery to the angels that men, sinners, would be saved by God. And I just think, like, what a rejoicing must have taken place when he was received into the kingdom of God. 
So if Abel then is the example of inward confidence, then Enoch surely must be the example of outward evidence, right? We know very little about the man Enoch. He's seventh in line with Adam. We know that so close, so close was his walk with God that God took him up before he would ever experience the pains of death. 65 years of living according to his own selfish means and then 300 years of walking with God. I mean, imagine what that would look like in the life of a believer who's being sanctified day by day to think 300 years of sanctification. God must have been so pleased with Enoch that he just took him right up. So impressive was his walk that it was in the context of his life that the author chose, verse 6, that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Enoch pleased God, and he becomes for us an example of what it looks like to live for God. When we come to know God, we have the right attitude towards him, and we also have the right walk as we execute and exercise that faith in him. So with that, I'm just going to close with Hebrews chapter 12. I'm just going to look ahead just, to, just briefly in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. Well, let me start with verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Listen, the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. For those of you who have found your treasure in God, the journey is not over. God has a plan for you by which he's going to work his marvelous will in your life towards the consummation of joy in other people's lives and in the Lord himself. And for those who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, who you have not put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is such a stark warning that the Bible provides for you. And I pray that you would put all of your confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.